We are continuing with a message series from the New Testament book of Acts called Spirit, Mission, and Drama. And today we're going to take a look at all, all three of those, uh, some, the spirit, the mission, and some, and some drama. Um, you know, the book of Acts is actually one of the rare New Testament books. It's not so much didactic. It's not lecture teaching. It's historical narrative. And it tells us just the extraordinary, amazing story of the first band of followers uh, who had been given such grace and such a, an amazing mission and, and, and purpose and uh, uh, never had a bigger assignment been given to maybe a less qualified group of people, but they're on the move. They're on the march. And uh, uh, the Lord's church, it's, uh, it's growing. It's thriving. And how in the world did they do it? Well, First of all, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit is, there's life. And uh, second of all, they had a message of, of grace and truth, an incredible message that could not be restricted by the human boundaries of race or culture or even sin, that sin can be uh, forgiven. And also, they are empowered by the truth of the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything, and so filled with the Spirit, and absolutely sure of the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of the resurrection for you and me, they took the message of Jesus forward. That's not to say everything was rosy. They had some challenges. They had some problems along the way. And today we're going to read about one such challenge in Acts chapter 15. And you probably don't hear too many sermons on Acts 15. I don't know that I've ever really preached on Acts 15 because it's sort of a, a longer story of a theological controversy. That's the name of today's message, a controversy of large proportions. But uh, hang with me. We're going to walk through this quickly and briefly, and I think you'll see the significance of it, because this movement of grace is facing a hijack attempt. And the easiest thing for those first church followers, for those first church leaders to do, hey, just give in to the loudest whining voices. You know, that's one way to lead, right? You just give in to the loudest voices. That's all you do. But they said, that we cannot do. So, point number one, let's talk about a little drama here. As the question is, how is salvation received? Ah, because there's a little twist coming. Acts 15, verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. So, you got that? They're coming from the mother church in Jerusalem, and they're coming to Antioch. And they were teaching the believers, listen to this, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, don't let that verse throw you here for a moment because they're actually saying, unless you follow the entirety of the ceremonial law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa. So you got to become a Jew first before you can be a Christian. And so Acts 15 here 
We're about to see a meeting of two churches, the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church. The Antioch church is primarily Gentile, and Paul and Barnabas are ministering there. And they're troubled by these people from Jerusalem who are coming, um, not authorized, but they're coming teaching that in order to be saved, mind you, you must follow the ceremonial law of Moses. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas, verse 2, into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. All right, we're going to have a sit-down meeting. So the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the believers very glad. Now, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. You see, Ronnie, does this have any application to us? It does. So let's continue to read under the heading of mission now. God's grace is for all. This threat's going to be uh, addressed. Well, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. What question? The question is, should Gentile believers be required to keep the ceremonial law of Moses? You see, under the old law, law of Moses had three components. The moral law, which we still value in Christianity, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, all right? But it also had civil and ceremonial components. And the ceremonial law, you can read about it, especially in the Old Testament book of Leviticus and elsewhere, but you had a number of ceremonies, listen, that were designed to teach you spiritual lessons. But all of those ceremonies have now been fulfilled in Christ. And those ceremonies also were designed to maintain a Jewish culture because the Jews were not, not God's favorite, but God's chosen people. They had the scriptures. They had the message. And it was through the Jews that the kingdom would ultimately be fulfilled. And so these ceremonial laws made the Jewish people a unique, unique people with their own customs their own culture. They were taught not to intermarry. You could become a proselyte to them, but they were to protect their culture and the ceremonial law. Well, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. Should Gentiles be required to obey the ceremonial law? Well, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Okay, here's what you're about to hear. You're about to hear from Peter Barnabas, Paul, and James, I'm not going to read it all, but you're about to hear from Peter, Barnabas, Paul, and James, and all four of them will bring a similar message, and here's the message. Everybody, God is at work in the Gentiles. God has shown that he's at work in the Gentiles. We've seen it. We've experienced it, 
And then James is about to tell you that actually it's even been foretold and prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. So Peter says, he says, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, he showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. You remember that? That's the whole story of Cornelius, right? For he, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. All right, listen up. You're about to hear the very last recorded words in the book of Acts from the Apostle Peter, and they are great words. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. And the whole assembly became silent. Now, as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them, Peter says, gang, God's at work among the Gentiles. He's bringing them to faith in Christ. Paul and Barnabas say, God is attesting to this through signs and wonders and miracles. And then James makes an appeal. When they finished speaking, verse 13, James spoke up, brothers, listen to me. What Simon, Simon Peter, what he described as what's been going on how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles, and the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And I'm, I'm not going to put all his, his quotation up there, but what he does, he goes back to the Old Testament prophets and he says, it's there in Scripture that God wants to bless all nations from the promise of Abraham. And now what God is doing, he's creating the church, which is one people made up of believers from all walks of life, just as God intended. You see, the Old Testament story, it's now our story completed in Christ. And so he says, verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. One more time, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles turning to God. Let me reread it and maybe tweak one word. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the outsider who's turning to God. And in every generation, churches must have the courage and the wisdom to ask, are we making it unnecessarily difficult? Let's keep the mission on point. And Peter, Barnabas, Paul, James, they're all saying, oh no, you don't have to become a cultural Jew before you can come to Christ. 
The message of salvation in Christ is one of grace through faith. And my friends, as my buddy Jason said this past Wednesday night in our uplift service, you're not the exception to that. God's grace is not for everybody but you. But Ronnie, you don't know my story. No, I don't. But God's grace is for you. And all are welcome to Christ by faith. And then how they communicate this, you'll see the Spirit at work through His church. Let's skip down to verse 28. So the apostles, the leaders who've met, they're going to send out a letter to everybody, the Jewish component of the church, the Gentile component of the church. And here's what they say. They say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. Notice what didn't happen. What didn't happen was one person going away in a corner. You have a plurality of church leaders coming together, people of good hearts and minds, and they wrestle with the Scriptures, they wrestle with what God is doing, and they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. I can do that. From blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And you will do well to avoid these things. Okay, listen what happened here. To maintain peace between Jew and Gentiles, James and the other church leaders suggested a concession and a compromise. Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to be Christians. But he did say, I need you to pay attention to four actions here. One, sexual immorality. That's a part of the moral code we embrace anyway. But it's, it's just sort of been assumed in the Gentile world that that could occur. No. You need to stay a thousand miles away from that. And then there are some other practices. Look, he'll say, the law of Moses has been taught for years. So many people have grown up in the Jewish, Jewish faith. They're coming to Christ. But there are certain practices that are just vulgar to them. And so would you avoid food after, uh, offered as an idol sacrifice, um, the meat of strangled animals and, and, and blood. And what he's doing, without going into detail on that, notice what's happening. On one hand, they are protecting the church, they are protecting the message of grace from corruption. And they're also protecting the church community from fragmentation. And he says to the Gentile component, look, you don't have to become a cultural Jew in order to be a Christian, but at the same time, would you be willing out of love and concession to care for the Jewish segment just the way we do? And so the ceremonial law, look, you're not obligated to that. The moral law, avoid sexual immorality. But would you be willing to make some concessions here for the purpose of fellowship? Not theology, but sociology, fellowship. So, a couple of uh, 
observations under point number four. Here, here's the first one. Protect the message of grace through conviction. And that's what these wise church leaders did. Again, let me quote verse 11, the Apostle Peter. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. And what this does, what this Jerusalem council does, it settles once for all that a person can be a Christian without a connection to Judaism. And what that means is the Christian invitation, the gospel invitation, it's not limited by race, by economic status, by education level. It's not even limited by your past and your struggles and your flaws and your sins. You can repent and come to Christ. And the deepest, darkest stain removed. And a new beginning, the Spirit of God poured out upon you. May I just remind you simply of the gospel message? And what that means is that the full measure of God's curse that I fully deserve and you fully deserve, it was poured out on Christ. And then when you come to Christ and place your trust in Him, you're baptized into Him, the righteousness that Jesus gained by living a perfect life is now yours. That perfection is credited to you. And the curse that belongs on your head credited to him a double exchange his righteousness is yours the curse we deserve is his now this debate going on in acts 15 was about the levitical law the ceremonial law some Gentiles had been told, if you really, become, really want to become a real saved person, you need to become culturally Jewish. But the church leaders said, no, no longer should these Levitical laws, these ceremonial laws be required of believers, not at all. If, if you wanted to keep some of them, that's fine, just as long as you understand it's cultural. But if you're a believer, it's no longer required, no longer binding on the conscience of a Christian. You say, well, Ronnie, I, I get that. Why are you sort of belaboring that? Because here's something critics of Christianity will throw in your face a lot. And I've heard it quite a few times over the last 10 years or so. You ready? It comes like this. You Christians say you believe the Bible. You don't really believe the Bible. You just pick and choose. You pick those things you want to follow, choose those things you want to follow, and then reject other things. You pick and choose what to believe. And then they will go to the book of Leviticus, to the ceremonial law that talks about, you know, hey, there are certain things you could touch, certain things you couldn't touch, certain things you could eat, certain things you couldn't eat, certain things you could wear, certain things you couldn't wear. And critics will go, see what the Bible says? You can't eat this, or you shouldn't eat that, or you shouldn't wear that. And It's there. It's in the Bible. But you don't follow it. You're just so inconsistent. You just pick and choose. But the Bible itself, the Bible itself says, there are certain parts of the Bible, certain parts of the Scriptures that are no longer authoritative. 
Yes, the book of Leviticus and the other ceremonial laws, they were authoritative in their time. But they're not authoritative today. And there are certain parts of the Bible that just do not fit anymore. They are not for you now in the Christian era because the authoritative Bible itself tells you it's not binding. And if the authoritative Bible itself in the New Testament tells you there's part of the Old Testament that is no longer binding on you, then you're not picking and choosing. Last of all, protect the community of faith through concession. They protected the purity of their faith. They protected the message of the gospel of grace by conviction. And they said, we're not, we're not going to uh, bend on this. We're not just going to give in to the loudest voice. But at the same time, there was a willingness to make a concession and a compromise when they could. And they just said in their official letter, look, you Gentile Christians, you don't have to obey the ceremonial law, but would you be willing to make some concessions to avoid certain things that just so offend Jewish consciences? And they were absolutely, those church leaders were absolutely unwilling to compromise the truth of the gospel. At the same time, they were so anxious to maintain Jewish-Gentile solidarity in the one body of Christ. I mean, for those of you who think church life should be completely full of tension, that's just not realistic. There have always been points of tension where people have to discuss and work things through. And, but once they hammered in salvation by grace, they were then prepared to be real practical on protecting the unity of the Spirit. As Martin Luther would say of the Apostle Paul, he was strong in faith and real soft in love. An absolute read when it came to non-essentials, but an iron pillar in essentials. And you know what happened? The entire group of churches that received this teaching says they were encouraged, benefited, strengthened, and they responded well. Hey, may I just be real practical with you here for a moment? I hope you'll be the kind of person who has both conviction and a willingness to make a concession. I hope you're not the kind of person who lives by the way, by the uh, it's my way or the highway mantra. If that's you, I'm, I'm sure you're a joy to live with over the long haul. Martha and I have been married almost 42 years. And there are certain convictions I bring to the marriage. I'm going to church. She might say, well, I'm tired of it. I'm not going to. That's fine. I'm going to church. I'm going to love and honor the Lord. Uh, I'm going to seek to follow the scriptures. I'm going to love our kids. 
And honey, I'm going to love you whether you want me to or not. I'm going to love you as I believe Christ would want me to love you. Those are some convictions I have that are strong. You know, I have some uh, requests over the years, a lot of requests. By the way, you know, in premarital counseling, I often teach a couple, one of the best words you will ever learn is the word request. Not a demand, not an ultimatum, a request. You're stating what you'd like to have, but you're placing it in that other person's corner. So I've had a lot of requests over the years, sometimes strong requests. Martha the same way. And we've had to learn how to make concessions, some compromises. You know, somebody says, well, a compromise, that's just the kind of thing where nobody really gets what they want. That's not true. What's the old story about somebody, they each wanted a part of the orange, so somebody just cut it in half? And they said, see, that's a compromise. People only get half of what they want. That's just not true. One person wanted the rind to use in a menu. The other person wanted to eat the orange. They could both get what, what uh, they value through a little wise concession and compromise. So Martha and I get married, and uh, she grew up in, in a home where, now she grew up in the South just like I did in Tennessee, but her family eating style was a little different from mine. My mom was a great Southern cook. And uh, if, if you couldn't fry it, she'd find a way to, uh, to fry it. And uh, one of the foods that I ate often growing up was, uh, was okra. Anybody here like okra? I, well, I loved okra. Uh, and, um, uh, and I grew up eating okra, um, I believe, the way the good Lord intended it to be eaten, which was uh, fried. And uh, I never knew there was another way to eat okra but fried okra. And, uh, and then I meet Martha, and we get married. And, you know, you've got to have some green vegetables, and we still eat green vegetables. But I, um, I no longer really need to eat fry, fried foods and try to stay away from fried foods with the occasional exception of a French fry along the way. But uh, Martha ate okra and loved okra but had never eaten fried okra. She grew up eating boiled okra if you can imagine such a thing. It, it sits on a plate and, and just moves by itself. Um, and you, you, don't, you don't have to eat it, just inhale and, it, and down it goes. And that's, uh, that's, that's boiled uh, okra. And she, would, she liked boiled okra with maybe some stewed tomatoes in there. And uh, several of you are shaking your head like this, and that's, that's what, what, what I would do. And, and uh, you know, she drew the line at fried okra, and I drew the line at boiled okra with stewed tomatoes. Just cannot go there. But we've got to eat, you know, some green vegetables every night. Is, is, can, we do, can we do something about this okra thing? Yes. So we do roasted okra. So she slices it long ways, puts it on a pan, dribbles olive oil over it, a little salt, a little pepper, some red pepper flakes as well to really make that thing sing. Put it in the oven, 
roast it and actually the longer you cook it the better it is we call she calls them okra fries and that concession has done wonders for our marriage <laughs> we can enjoy okra we can have a great conversation you say well now Ronnie that's a, that's a uh, simple illustration I know it is but you read Acts 15, it's a wonderful life lesson that, yes, we all need rock-solid pillars. And we drive them deep into the soil of God's love and truth. And we also have to have the spirit of flexibility and compromise and concession. And the early church did that. Not theological concession sociological concession not doctrinal concession uh, what we believe is just floating in the wind no but relational and fellowship concession because without a willingness to make some concessions life is just much more difficult than it needs to be your small group is much more difficult than it needs to be your church life will be much more difficult than it needs to be. And here, this early church, Acts 15, was not a display of weakness. To the contrary, it was a great display of both strength, wisdom, and maturity. And the reaction? People rejoiced. All right. God bless you, my friends. Thank you for being with us today, and, and now we want to take some time to pray. Let me ask our worship team to be coming back up here. Let me ask our elder couples to be taking their places down front quickly, please. Let me ask you to go ahead and be standing and getting ready to pray. You're certainly welcome to pray right where you are. Uh, you're welcome to come down here and pray with one of our elder couples. Yeah, go ahead and be standing, please. And uh, to those of you, again, who are with us online, there's someone there who's ready to uh, pray with you this morning as well. I'm, I want to say just a word here before we pray and ask you actually in your time of prayer to make sure you're praying uh, in an in ongoing way for, for our nation. You know, this past Friday in a landmark decision, our Supreme Court sent the power to legislate abortion back to the state level. And, um, you know, I don't view abortion solely as a political matter. I know it's been politicized. I believe it's a moral and spiritual matter. Abortion is intentionally terminating the life of an unborn child. And God creates life, expects us to protect it. And every human life from conception to death has God created worth? And so I would invite you and urge you to pray that God will guide our nation and to even a deeper commitment to honor the precious gift of life and to strengthen families because families are the foundation for a flourishing nation and society. And my prayer is that people of all ages, races, and religions will find compassion and care and grace and truth from the people of God.